Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to continue our conversation on critical race theory and connect it a bit more with the church and thinking about how the church can respond to and think through the issues of critical race theory. And joining me today to discuss this, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? It's going well, John. Thanks for having me. And we have Dr. Josh Carroll, who did a PhD in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, who is currently the Life Groups Pastor at Fellowship Dallas. How's it going, Josh? Going great, John. Thanks for having me. And we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who is Assistant Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success at Biola University, as well as an elder at Gospel Memorial Church of God in Christ. How's it going, Daniel? It's going well, John. And then finally, we have Dr. Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament from Durham University. How's it going, Logan? going quite well. Excellent. How about we begin with a thought about some of the difficulties that the church might have in thinking through how to respond to critical race theory and to, to be able to, you know, engage it well. I think a lot of the church engagement with critical race theory, there's a lot of uh, unknown. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of kind of suspected Marxism flowing through. Uh, any thought process that has to do with critical race theory and even critical theory in general. And so when people start to think about that, there's an immediate reaction against um, some of this stuff that it, that just kind of is visceral, is one of those things where we're not fully entering into the conversation trying to understand. And so that creates a gap between people who are trying to figure out what this critical race theory is all about and how it pertains to them and maybe even some um, finding some voice for societal concerns or past wounds that they've, they've experienced. And the church can either have a choice of opening up the conversation and, and being involved in it, stepping into it. But sadly, I see the church shutting down the conversation uh, rather quickly or labeling it rather quickly with a uh, Marxist kind of general statement or saying, well, that's just Marxist thought. We're not even going to talk about that. We're not going to entertain concepts. And uh, when that happens, a gap develops between things that are happening in the world and people that desire social justice and what's going on in the church and our willingness to talk and, and work it through. I think leaning into that, Josh, I think one, one aspect that's come to my mind is this, uh, this idea of fear, you know, kind of this fear of the slippery slope, um, which I, I wish we had even more time to divulge into, but I think this fear of hearing another perspective actually hinders our evangelistic ability uh, as a church, because I, I think the reality of um, when you hear the stories of an oppressed people or an oppressed group or however you want to define that, there there is this idea that that oppressed group in some ways is seeking to tear down all forms of power or all forms of structure. And I think we have to question ourselves, uh, it, are there systems or powers that be that are rooted in sin? Um, and if they're rooted in sin, then that there is the culpable sin of the individual as a part of that process. And as Christians, we should have an understanding that depravity will manifest itself in whatever space in which we allow it to occupy. Um, and, and so I think to, to be willing to sit down and to hear the voices of those who say that they're oppressed or, or feel oppressed 
and, and to hear how that oppression possibly comes through the culpable individual sin that leads to even a corporate or collective sin that, that might be embedded in systems, I think is a humility on our part. We don't have to agree to listen, right? That I think one, I think one aspect is, is that we already disagree before we are willing to listen. And that actually undercuts our evangelistic ability. And so I, I, I'm really hopeful for the church that the church will be willing to sit at the well with, with, with individuals whom they may not necessarily have an understanding of the theory or philosophy in which they approach, but are willing to sit there for the sake of saying, what can we do collectively together to ensure that no one, no one is living under the, the finger of oppression while we as the church idly stand by for fear of what might be um, incorporated into us as a body. Daniel, I, I like what you were saying about the importance of listening and how that's something that's very scary for us to do because it opens us up to the other and to the unknown and to potentially being wrong or to having to do a lot of work to explore new issues. It's it's a very difficult thing. There's a, a quote from Kevin Van Hooser that I love. He says, pride only knows it doesn't listen. And so pride already knows the answer before hearing. Pride already has assessed, it, assessed the situation. Pride has already come to conclusions and it's already taken a stance on all the issues. And in that posture, it's actually impossible to listen, to hear properly, to be receptive to the voice of the other, to um, actually see an outside perspective that is not within your own gaze. Um, Pride only knows it doesn't listen. Yeah, as much as I um, difficulty sometimes with uh, and frustrations with Karl Barth's theology, one of the um, most helpful and pastoral points that I ever learned from his work was that the gospel always puts a question mark over our institutions and over our human constructs. So theology is a human construct. The church is a human construct. Uh, our communities, our sermons, our music are human constructs. And we must never confuse those with God's direct activity in the world. And I think there's a lot of fear that if the church begins to listen to critical theory, then what we will do is we will lose sight of the gospel. Uh, we will lose sight of our history and we will lose sight of Jesus and the Bible and stuff like that. And I think in that response, there seems to be a conflation between God's work in the world and the constructs that we have created in order to attempt to approximate that. And for that reason, if somebody critiques you and your theology and your history, then that means that they are critiquing God and the gospel and Jesus. Uh, and I think that if we just allow, and, and as Amber said, have the humility to actually just sit down and listen for a moment and not think that listening or hearing the voices of other people will somehow threaten God or hinder the work of the gospel, which is, of course, nonsense, then uh, we have nothing to be afraid of. And I think that the, the, the pastoral response to critical theory, I think, first needs to be one of self-questioning, that pastors themselves, people in positions of spiritual care, 
need to actually listen to voices that they may maybe have not heard before, depending on who they are, what situation they're in, et cetera. And, you know, sit and have the humility to listen to maybe, maybe that there's something, there, maybe there's something insightful uh, being said here. And, and I do think that in the end, people hopefully will be able to discern whether something is valuable or not. And maybe in the end, or, and this is what I probably would suggest, that many of the insights of critical theory can actually be incredibly pastoral to people. There are lots of people who internalize systems of oppression and it severely harms them. And helping other people see that maybe they're in these really, really messed up and self-perpetuating systems can actually end up being really liberating for them. So I wonder if maybe it would be important to clarify the church, like there's the church in terms of God's gathered people and his holy nation, precious possession, and those kinds of things. And then there's more of like the institutional side of the church and how we've set up certain forms of polity and structure and organization. I wonder if maybe that's important to clarify because it can come across as like, oh, the church is just this constructed thing. Like it's not a thing that God has made we can critique the church's institutional side and how we've set things up and structured them um, that are maybe extra biblical or maybe that we've derived from quote unquote biblical principles. And, and that can be subject to examination before scripture and should be. Whereas the, the church itself we know is, is something that is that God is forming and that he is doing. And even the, the other aspect of that too, Amber, of the church, uh, people that represent the church, especially when I think about digital media, members of my congregation, that when they get on digital media, they think they have a voice that's completely different from an institutional voice that we have as a local church and, and vastly different from the voice the church of the body of Christ has. <laughs> so people that even represent Christianity or and and sit in those sit in those spaces of conflict and and antagonize people through their posts and things like that online. I think pastorally, there's a huge difference between being open to a person and being open to a person's worldview. Right? Um, we're so afraid that untruth will infiltrate our institutions. We're so afraid that untruth will incite. Well, just like we use these meta like words warfare words like infiltrate and fight against and all these kind of different things uh, when i think of my kids and you know people are totally afraid that the influence of a worldview is going to sway them into untruth into a place where they're not living the christian life but what we're really building into this system is don't talk to people that don't believe exactly like you do. And I think there's a huge difference between being open to that world, uh, a worldview and saying, I want to take your worldview. I want to take your worldview. I want to not just process it with you, but I want to live it with you. There's a difference between that and being open to a person as an individual and pastorally receiving that person and seeing what's going on behind the worldview, seeing what's going on, <clears throat> the hurt, the wounds, the pain that, culture that current systems of power that current systems of institutions like churches and things like that where they have been hurt by that and so they're latching on to something that 
provides answers for their hurt or provides a definition and allows them to to express their hurt in a way that um, really just coalesces in action. And so receiving those peoples are so important and not being scared of their worldview and knowing that the power of truth will will just will is more powerful than anything. Um, if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the gospel itself isn't sullied or, or you know dirtied by us having a conversation with somebody with a different worldview. Really like what y'all are saying. I think what it points to is is sort of the how of engagement with critical race theory, you know, rather than what we see a lot on the internet at the moment, which is kind of the what, you know, um, critical race theory is wrong. Here's, here's all the biblical reasons why it's wrong, or here's all of the, you know, political social reasons why it's wrong, because it has Mar Marxist links or Marxist ideology or whatever. And there's always the just this kind of you know, perpetual fixation on the what. And I think what y'all are pointing to is the how of engagement, which I think is really valuable. I wonder if we want to say more about uh, what being a, a Christian peacemaker uh, looks like in this process. Yeah, I've been thinking about that very question a lot because what I see the primary activity of Christians, um, evangelical Christians right now, is trying to figure out where they stand on all the issues. And that's really understandable because critical race theory or critical, critical theory more generally, unless you've been in the academy for a while, is this completely new thing that all of a sudden just came out of nowhere and blew up and became huge. And it's all everybody is talking about right now. And so obviously there's going to be this feeling of like, what is this thing? How can I figure out what it is? Who can explain it to me in the easiest terms? So I get it and just feel like I can get a grasp of it because it's so bizarre. It's so different from what I'm used to. And I want to know where it came from and what it is and, and what I should think about it. And so we spend a lot of time trying to sort out our stances on all of the issues and formulate critiques or formulate defenses or figure out just in society more generally, what is a Christian perspective on X, Y, and Z, really focusing on the focal, on the, on the what of all of the issues and thinking that what it means to be a Christian during this time is to make sure that you get all of the positions right. You're in the right side or on the right side of all of the issues. And I think that while it's incredibly important to think through the issues, I mean, we've thought through a lot of these issues on this podcast in the last several episodes. So while that's really important and while these conversations are necessary, what I think in terms of what it means to be a Christian witness in our particular era in a very hostile society, in a very bifurcated society, is probably going to look less like figuring out all the issues and more like being a peacemaker, more like living a life that reflects the character of God, the one who brings peace, the one who binds wounds. It probably looks a lot like living a life of trust in God above all these other things that are going on. It probably looks like a life that casts fear and anxiety onto him. It probably looks like a life of radical generosity and hospitality. It probably looks like a life of speaking with gentleness and grace. 
turning the other cheek and not returning, not returning an angry word for an angry word. It probably looks like diffusing a lot of the hostility um, and just being, being agents of peace in the world. That's just such a powerful way to reflect the character of the God that we know and to be about his work in the world. So not to say we don't Dis- discuss and study issues. <laughs> that's important. Uh, I enjoy doing those things. And sometimes that's the easy, the easier thing to do. The harder thing to do is to, to embody what it means to be a peacemaker. I really like that portrait that you painted for us. I, I think that is a very Christ-like posture in, in terms of engagement and, and the way that we would do that intellectually. And I think for uh, a number of people um, who might hear that their their reaction uh, might be one of concern and fear because what it sounds like is giving up power. It, it sounds like uh, no longer being able to sort of wield truth, you know, like a weapon and you know attack. And it's very disarming, uh, of course, as as the peacemaking uh, implies. It's a, it's a nonviolent approach to intellectual engagement. And I'm wondering if, if we could say a bit more about power because I think. Power is this, um, you know, kind of perpetual temptation for evangelicals wanting to gain political power, wanting to, to, to gain that kind of societal influence. And it seems to me that as a result, that can have effects to where the kind of engagement that you're recommending for us, Amber, which I think is so helpful, does not seem like something worth pursuing because it sounds like giving up to a lot of people. Can we talk a bit about this kind of allure of power? I think the the apex challenge of power, right, is is something that the church I think is has historically wrestled with, but then also has at times been wonderful examples of right to, to use the ability that we have um, for the sake of uh, those who do not have power. I think is incredibly gospel centered in the sense of when I think about the cross, right, the cross. Uh, Jesus relinquishes his power in, in, in one sense so that we can be united with the Father in the way in which he desires of us to be as the church. And I think the, the embodiment of that is our willingness to relinquish power for the sake of unity um, in that which God would desire of us to be unified, right? Not all unity is good unity, but the reality of like good unity in the sense of the upbuilding of others who are created in the image of God with dignity and respect and the same ability uh, to thrive in the way in which we deem as a God-given way to thrive um, is at the heart of the gospel, right? And we're not even getting to the point of salvific change. Um, the reality of, uh, of power being um, an area where we are fearful of losing to me is almost antithetical to the, the, the very crux of the gospel, right? We gain more by being willing to lose more for the sake of God being glorified among us. Um, and I think in the, the American evangelical way, because there's so much embedded individualism, we lose sight of the collective witness that comes with us saying, I'm willing to give up um, that which seems so good so that we um, can be unified for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and so I think the priorities of kingdom versus individual right and individual power and individual possession should always be at the forefront. 
because what we gain on the back end of that, uh, and may not even be in this world, uh, but what we gain eternally is far much more greater than any power that we can retain uh, in this earthly life. And so, so I think that we always have to be in this mindset as, as, as a church collectively and institutionally of what power do we hold on to that doesn't advance uh, the unification of not only the church, but those who otherwise would be disjointed from us coming into the fold um, in a way that actually is glorifying to God. I know many times people walk um, away from the power conversation for fear of what it's going to undo in, in the life of an individual Christian. Um, but the reality is I think that that is a misstep in the sense of that we are a collective people and um, what I do individually does impact the collective. And when I'm unwilling to at least examine what I hold uh, too dearly, um, I perpetuate um, a, a model that says, like, I don't have to give up anything um, for the sake of your wholeness. Uh, and Jesus gave up everything for the sake of our wholeness. And yes, he, he, he regains that. But I think the model for us is that as we relinquish that which uh, – is not wholesome and not purely righteous for the sake of God's righteousness to be shown among others. Uh, we are more of an example of the gospel than we ever, um, ever could even imagine um, when we actually enact that and see the power of the gospel in play. Um, I think it's acts personified, right? Um, we give as each, ha each has a need, um, and that requires a giving away in a way that actually uplifts the whole. I think one thing to add to those really insightful thoughts is that this, this power that white evangelicals have is not an objective or innate good. It's neutral and it depends on how you use it. And if in a particular instance, in order to love people, it requires taking up causes that will not make you politically popular with the people that you are politically popular, then if you hold on to those political connections and powers, then you're being greedy. By keeping your place of influence, you have become greedy to the detriment of another. And I think that there's, there seems to be a perception amongst a lot of evangelicals that political power is what people should be aiming for. But one crucial point of the gospel is to show that the political power of the state, of the government, is actually powerless in the face of the cross, in the face of the power of God, in the face of the spirit of God. And so to, and this is again, coming back to this confusion between human constructs and divine activity, that if the only way that we can see God's kingdom on earth is through trying to instantiate it by sheer brute political force, by trying to get a voter block, by voting a um, strong man into office, by you know, uh, forcing out uh, you know, laws uh, in X and Y, uh, with X and Y content, then I just think that this, this shows no evidence that this, these kind of power tactics are informed by the God who, who demonstrated his power through weakness uh, and through crucifixion uh, and through foolish people.
I think what's, what's important to know, to, to, to point out about relinquishing power is that this, this power that evangelicals think that they have is, needs to be questioned. Uh, they, they need to interrogate it in terms of whether it is actually a good that they want to hold on to. And if that's the way that they want to do good in the world through that kind of power. Logan, I, I think you hit on a great point. When I think of when I think of power and I think of just my human default of wanting to retain power and wanting to have a safety net and wanting to have influence, uh, basically so I can build structures around myself to be safe, so I can um, be secure. It's antithetical to the gospel itself. I mean, and Paul talks about in second Corinthians, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Uh, when God is, or my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. God's talking about how when we are weak and we're at our point where we don't look like the rest of the world, don't look like the foolish structures of the world that God turns on his, on its head because Jesus has come and, and reversed everything. And you can see that in first Corinthians. He's talking about when we're at our weakest point, God is the most evident. And so we have this evangelical kind of understanding, and, and that's a broad statement, but um, especially when I think about today, if I solidify my influence and my power, I am winning for the gospel. And there's a, there's a, there's a point where you say, one, if that's your perspective, how, how silly is that? Because power itself is opposite of what gospel is talking about. We're, we're talking about God's power, Jesus's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, not our personal accruement of political clout or influence or power. And so being able to receive somebody, being able to be with somebody that has, has been messed around by the world's power structures, if anything, we should be relating to people like that in a deeper and, and, and a more real level than, than trying to hold on to that power, than trying to wield that power in a way that will help make us secure, will, will be defenders of the faith in a way that the gospel isn't evident because it's not meeting people where they're at like Jesus did, in a way that's not about access to the Father and uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the continued presence of God here on earth. Yeah, there's a danger in, in trying to keep power and trying to wield power, especially if God isn't in it. And, it, and it's opposite of what it looks like when Jesus lived the power of the gospel and it ultimately led to his death and, and uh, the most powerful thing that could ever happen that turned history. So I've definitely heard people on both sides of critical race theory and also evangelicals say something very similar, and that is that the Bible is a hegemonic discourse, um, that the Bible is this uh, thing that pushes its power over and against the world and um, so for the critical race theorists, you know, that could be a reason to reject the Bible as just this social construct of 
designed to enforce certain systems of oppression. Um, for the evangelical, it's a way of discounting critical race theory by saying the Bible is that. And so if we believe the Bible, then we have to believe that it's okay to, uh, for, for truth to be assertive over the world in these kinds of ways. And, and so I, I, I want to say that, um, it is very true that Jesus wins <laughs> and it's very true that truth prevails and it's very true that his kingdom is going to come and it's very true that he crushes his enemies beneath his feet but it's also very true that um as Josh was saying that 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 is that is him that's not necessarily us that we don't win for Jesus by crushing our enemies under our feet we participate in the life that he's made possible for us by being peacemakers in the world and by pointing and reflecting the character of our God. And truth isn't this really brittle thing that you have to assert over and against the world. We live in a creation. <laughs> we live in a world that was made by God and for God and is held together by Christ. And yes, it's corrupt in all sorts of ways, um, but God's work is a redemptive and a restorative work where he's putting pieces back together and so the movement we we see is not so much that truth is this thing that pushes itself by enforcement over and against the world, but that truth is this thing that heals the world, um, that reconciles the world and everything into Christ. And um, so I think that should inform our Christian witness and, and the kinds of activities that we do in the world and even in the way that we understand the Bible. It's really, really easy for us to take our own interpretations of the Bible or maybe the particular systems, ideological systems that we've created from the Bible or kind of extracted from the Bible and to conflate that, to project that as a worldview and to conflate that with scripture itself. Um, and so what we're more interested in is asserting our ideologies about the Bible um, as opposed to truly indwelling scripture and indwelling the narrative of scripture and being people who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb and are awaiting the day when he makes all things right. And we put our hope in that. And that's what we have our, our gaze fixed at is that future day. And we understand who is the one who's winning the battle and how exactly that battle is won. Yeah, I guess in, in response to the question, is the Bible hegemonic? I mean, I, I think there, there's kind of two issues with the question that I have. One is hegemonic is a pretty broad uh, word that can mean all sorts of things. And you could probably come up with a yes for any number of reasons for that answer. You know, because the word king is used in the Bible, therefore it's hegemonic or something like that. Um, I mean, even, even depends on how, of course, like um, when, we say that, when we say that statement, what exactly are we predicating? I'm not sure. Secondarily, I think I'm probably more interested in the use of the Bible than making statements about the content or ontology of, the, of all of scripture. I mean, I think that, um, again, depending on your definition and because of the vast amount of material in the Bible, any question you ask about it can be answered in a, in a billion different ways because of the, the, the kind of extensive content that is there within. So I think the better, maybe the better question is, is it possible to use the Bible in such a way that it actually opposes 
harmful hegemonic structures? And I would say, well, yes, because it's a text and you can use text in lots of different ways. You can also use text to attempt to justify oppressive hegemonic structures. And that's exactly what you even see in the Bible itself. You see people in the Bible using other portions of, the, of, of scripture to hurt and harm other people. And then other people disagree on scriptural grounds with those practices and go back and forth, etc. So I think the, the bigger question, uh, I think maybe an apologetic question that might make ourselves feel good is to say, oh, actually the Bible is a liberating document. But that's not really an interesting statement to me because I don't really care if you think that the Bible is a, a liberating uh, document or written by oppressed people or whatever, because if you're still using it in a way that's hurting people, then it doesn't matter what you believe about it. So I guess the, the, the more important question for us to be self-critical as opposed to just defending our theological positions and making ourselves feel comfortable is, am I using the Bible in the way that I read the Bible? Am I centering myself? Am I centering my own comfort? Am I, am, I, am I allowing myself to be and feel uncomfortable? Am I allowing myself to be challenged in such a way that actually makes me love people who I have a hard time or would not uh, de facto love? Uh, do I use the Bible to help inspire people and to help people uh, get out of, you know, oppressive hegemonic structures? And do I attempt to call out those horrible structures by in my in my use of scripture as well so i think that that turns the question on us which is where i think it needs to go not kind of broad statements about what the bible is or isn't which are kind of objectively quite difficult to answer unless you're asking stuff like is the bible a religious text or something logan i think that is an excellent final word for us i think the function of of scripture is such a, an important question how how scripture is being utilized or or abused uh is is a really crucial part of this conversation and thinking about how it might perpetuate oppressive structures and these sorts of things i think in our current political climate we see the bible used as a prop you know for photo ops we see the bible brandished as a weapon to beat people up and enforce uh, particular laws uh, and oftentimes without any real concern for what the Bible actually teaches or, or any kind of awareness of what the Bible says. It's just, it's just a object that we can, you know, throw around to, again, uh, reinforce that power uh, that we were talking about. And so I think that call there um, at the end to consider how it functions and how we're utilizing it, I think is really really helpful so i just appreciate this conversation thank thank you all for for joining us today josh logan amber and daniel and uh really enjoyed it thanks john thanks john it was a lot of fun thanks john thanks everybody
you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.